Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with digital designer in Denmark, Ryan Waring. He's the creative director and partner at a firm called Revolt. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Waring. Okay, kids, today on Obsessed with Design, I'm chatting with Ryan Waring, creative director and partner of Revolt. Today, we talk about burnout, buyouts, and motorcycles, and the heart attack that brought us to today's story. So, Ryan, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, you are all the way today from uh, Copenhagen, is that correct? Yes, I am. Yeah, sunny Copenhagen, Denmark. Gotta love the <laughs> the technology that allows us to chat halfway around the world. So that's amazing. I think it was, and now I'm trying to remember if it was maybe you had seen part of my story or listened to uh, to the show, but you had told me, "Hey, I think I've got an interesting story." And drop me a line. So, kids, if you're listening, if you have an interesting story, this is uh, you know this could be you. Just let me know what you want to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've been listening to the show for quite a long time, actually, and. I think it's been a great resource for me to, um, as you say, with technology, to find people from uh, from all over and all different walks of life to learn from. Uh, actually, um, Douglas Davis's book just landed on my doormat yesterday, so I wouldn't have heard about him if it wasn't for the show. Oh, absolutely! Douglas is a great guy, and that's a that's a pretty killer book too. So, hope you enjoy the read. I look forward to it, Ryan. As a listener, you know I know going down the path of the origin stories, so. If you don't mind starting there, give us a story about how you found yourself in this uh, creative industry, which you know led you to Denmark ultimately. Uh, yeah, I think um, I've been a kind of creative type, I guess, since I was really, really young, setting uh, booby traps around the house with sellotape and things like that. But it wasn't <laughs> until uh, it wasn't until I got to um, kind of end of high school stage. I was, I would say, not the most applied kid in high school. I was very much into skateboarding and punk rock and that kind of thing. And gaming as well, actually, early stages of gaming. Played a lot of like, Counter-Strike and things like that back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, my friend, um, he kind of called me up one day and was like, he'd seen this brochure for a kind of like architectural product design course in the local college. It was kind of a weird, yeah, a weird technical technical creative course i would say and uh, he called me up he was like let's go and have a look at this open day it seems pretty cool so we went over and saw it and straight away we just kind of signed up it felt like i could apply all of my skateboard illustrations to something that might have a little bit more commercial value and we joined the course and then uh, on the first day they started going through all of the mathematics of the architectural side of things and uh, we quit on day one so (laughs) (laughs) yeah We kind of found ourselves walking through the corridor of this college and um, this woman coming in the other direction was like, hey, you guys shouldn't be out of class now. Like, where should you be? And we were like, oh, we've kind of just quit already on on the first day. So she sat us down and kind of talked about what we really wanted to do. And then we started talking about, you know, drawing on skateboards and all of those kind of things. And she said, well, you should go talk to this guy in this other in this other course. So uh, we did. And then we joined that course and it was kind of a hardcore graphic design course. So maybe before we go into that, was was this woman like an administrator or like a, a counselor? Uh, she was a she was another lecturer. She oh, was a lecturer walking walking in the other direction. 
I think uh, maybe from like a copy room back to a class or something and she just spotted us. Well, how amazing is that, that she took the time to sit down and figure out where you were headed, you know, and, you know, if she had missed you, <laughs> sure. where might you have know. gone, you know, quitting and walking out the door with your skateboard, but. I like to think I would have been a professional gamer, but I don't know if that would have worked out. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was, that was kind of a huge changing point. And, um, it was kind of a multimedia graphic design course where you kind of learn a little bit of code, a little bit of video editing, some photography, and then maybe 60% of it is, is graphic design. So mm-hmm. that became kind of the focus and finished that course off and went on to university there then to do a creative advertising degree. So that was much more applied to marketing and, uh, and advertising. From there, where did your, um, your professional life take you? So finishing up from university, my first job was actually at a record label in London. So I went up there and, uh, and did a short stint, uh, helping design like record promotions and that kind of thing. But in my Third week, I think, I uh, got contacted by someone on Twitter from an agency called Digitas LBI. I think they were they were LBI at the time. You guys would know Digitas probably in the US. Definitely. Um, so LBI was like the biggest European digital agency. And then Digitas was huge in the States and then they later merged. So I was at LBI before that merger. But yeah, she contacted me on Twitter and then um, went and uh, had an interview there. And it was much more kind of technical design and allowing me to kind of play with digital a little bit more and it was much more in line to the university course that I'd studied as well it was way more advertising and marketing whereas the record industry is much more kind of graphic design if you know what I mean it wasn't so marketing focused so it's interesting that when I was in school I just sort of dreamed about being able to work for a record label I was really into music and all that and you landed there immediately, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm good. I'm done." <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, actually, I don't think uh, I don't think that's necessarily the the whole truth of that. Uh, if you want, <laughs> if you want the real perspective, is that try living in London, working at a record label, because everyone, as you said yourself, would queue around the block for that kind of job. Right. So you basically just don't get paid. Uh, trying to live in central central London with uh, no salary is not an easy feat. University was hard enough, but this was definitely like super noodles after super noodles. <laughs> yeah, a good friend of mine interned in uh, in Nashville for a label, and and I I don't think they paid him at all. So it was yeah. um, I I think those are those kinds of positions they can get away with that. Yeah, the worst thing is they get their pick of the talent too, right? Is that they're like you got you're you're great, you can come in, we won't pay you. You'll do something great and then you'll leave because you don't get paid. But then there's the next guy in line. So I think it's quite an easy industry for them to, to keep getting the thing in. But I mean, it's a great start and it was great publicity and so much fun. So I don't regret it at all. So then Digitas LBI is, is sort of where the pressure cooker all got started, right? Not necessarily Digitas LBI London, actually. And it was a mix of different things. I wouldn't say it was Digitas LBI's uh, input. And so I, had a, I had a wonderful time working there for a, for a few years, actually. But I did a, a short-ish stint in the London uh, office. And maybe, say, four months in, I think, I was contacted, actually, funnily enough, by a guy that I used to play Counter-Strike with, who I didn't have <laughs> any idea about this at the time. But the whole time we played together, he was the... ECD or executive creative director of Sapient for Europe. And uh, he moved back to Australia where he was from. And then somehow we ended up chatting on Facebook one night and discovered what each other did for a living. A couple of days later, I had a contract in my inbox saying, do you want to move to Australia and work for the agency that I'm with over here? So 
that was a pretty easy decision to make in uh, winter in London mm-hmm. to be offered a job to move to uh, Australia in the middle of summer. So I uh, told my parents, <laughs> much to my mum's dismay, and packed my bags and moved to Australia. And that was that was really interesting. I think uh, I'd never been there before. Obviously, I, I knew this guy through uh, online gaming, but I'd never met him in real life or anything. And then just started working together for maybe two years at an agency called Hot House in Sydney, where uh, the main accounts were Toyota and British Petroleum and a few others. So it was quite nice. A smaller agency than what I was at in Digitas and much more ability to grow quickly. I guess I had more uh, FaceTime with the accounts and that kind of things, which was stuff you didn't really get as a junior in a, a big agency in London. Mm-hmm. So these guys were um, a little bit smaller and in Sydney and you had never been to Australia prior to this. So you didn't like, there wasn't a visit and then you're like, yeah, I think it's okay. I think I'll stay. It was accept and then, then get on the plane. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I've kind of made a bit of a history of that now. Actually, I also moved to Denmark at a later date without ever going there before too. So, um, I think, yeah, taking those risks has been quite a, like a big part of the early stages of my career, but it's definitely paid off. Yeah, moving to Australia, I'd never been there before. It was so nice to move there and all the heat and the beaches and, and everything. So it, was, it wasn't like it was a hard choice. I'd, you know, I'd seen enough pictures and movies and stuff there that you, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, exactly. And uh, when you got to Denmark, it was the same way, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... Not quite. It was more like uh, <laughs> snow boots and uh, fluffy wool hoods. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's catch up to um, age 25. Tell us about how this all went down. So I'd been working in uh, I've been working in Australia at this point for probably two and a half years or maybe three years. I was working on a uh, working on a client where there was quite a big project happening between our agency and uh, like a video production company and then a media agency, and there was kind of a lot of moving parts to it. It was a big a big strategic piece that was going to play over a few years, and this was kind of the launch campaign that was going to be the foundation for this and. Then as the global team, they were going to get this to be bought into by all the local markets across the world. So it was quite a big shift for them as, a, as an organization, I would say. And uh, we'd been working on this project for a few weeks, and we were kind of coming to crunch time of the first delivery of the content. And some of the partner agencies that we were working with hadn't really held up their end of the bargain. But I was like the creative head on the project and, and having, as I say, the, most of the client FaceTime with that. So it was the the one that had to, I guess, answer to the client and uh, pressure built up trying to mm-hmm. work all the hours to to cover the work that hadn't been done by these external partners, I guess. And um, we had this meeting with the client. Actually, they were totally fine with what we'd produced in the short time frame to kind of catch up. And uh, it was, but I, I myself, I guess, was really stressed out with this whole process. I went out to get some lunch and uh, walked into a shopping center and all of a sudden came over all sort of dizzy and uh, and faint and yeah, had a heart attack on the, actually on the bottom of an escalator. So at least there was some comedy to it. I stepped onto an escalator, had a heart attack, on, landed on my face mm-hmm. and then slowly went up the escalator, lay down. So <laughs> at least it was kind of funny in some way. <laughs> so when they create the film about your life, then that could be the I think that will be you know, the, uh, the comedic relief. That will be like the key moment in the trailer. Yeah, I would say <laughs> the face against the escalator as it's going up. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, you 
it sounds like you were under a lot of pressure and feeling stress. Where did you feel that you were unhealthy prior to this? Had you seen any symptoms or was there anything that that led you to believe that you were at risk? Not really. I think since uh, probably my early part of the university days where I felt like, I don't know, I come from quite like a, I don't want to go for a boohoo story, so maybe we cut that part out. <laughs> but uh, I come from quite like a not so well-off family. So when I went to university, I was the first one to go. I felt like a responsibility to do well. And then I guess that translated onto jobs and career path. And maybe I felt a little bit of that with moving to Australia, like I was hopefully going up the ladder each time and making these good decisions that would make parents proud and so on. So I think since the early university days, I'd kind of worked at hundred percent. I was working all hours kind of all the time that hadn't really stopped when I got into these agency situations in, uh, in Sydney either. I've actually got an article on my medium profile about it where I show my schedule of what it was like pre heart attack and then what I adapted it to post heart attack and where I became really kind of strict about, uh, where I gave my time to the workplace versus where I kept it for personal time, which I hadn't really done before. That was quite a, quite a big shift in my life, I think. Well, we'll definitely link to the medium article in our show notes just so people can go in and get the detailed version, but, but maybe give us the, the brief comparison of the before and after, or if, you know, if someone listening and I guarantee there are people listening who are in a similar spot of just feeling the pressure and, you know, moving up the ladder and they're, they're dealing with clients and bosses and, and sometimes it's even self-directed pressure, right? So you know, what, what would those key things be that you changed that you think might help someone else? Yeah, I, ba- I basically put up a calendar that's seven days a week and it's all red <laughs> showing the, the places where work would be an acceptable thing for me to be doing. <laughs> so the before was pretty clear. Before, yeah, before was damaging, <laughs> I would say, to be honest. Definitely not in a, yeah, definitely not putting myself in a, in a healthy situation. But then uh, post heart attack, I shifted it so that nine till five thirty would be the sort of work hours, where five thirty till seven I would still say available on emails, but not necessarily at home working. And then seven p.m. and onwards would be personal time, and then uh, blocking out Saturday and Sunday also to personal time, but a little bit of emails on Sunday evening. So kind of, I guess I moved the calendar to what or the schedule to what you would associate with being quite a normal uh, work life balance. Is, is all that really happened there. This is uh, like probably a good problem in most people's eyes, but when you kind of switch from this extreme workaholism to having free time, you know, what do you, what do you fill that time with or how do you interest yourself in, in fun or interesting things that are not work to distract you from, you know, the habit of going back to it? Like what, what have you filled your days with? Well, this is the this is the biggest change I think in my personal life that I've had since my teen years. Even is having that free time. Uh, I discovered that all of a sudden that creativity that you're kind of burning out in the workplace all the time. I could then apply that to stuff that you know other other passions, I guess, outside of that kind of marketing and design uh, area. So I bought a Harley Davidson and a tent, and uh, I'd leave work on Friday evenings and go camping until Sunday maybe two or three weeks of the, of the month. So it was quite a nice mm-hmm. way to get outside and, and see more of the surroundings. I kind of moved to Australia and then worked the whole time and not really seen any of it. So I started becoming a little bit more uh, outdoorsy and, and going and experiencing different things. And that really is, yeah, in, 
introducing motorcycles into my life like that has been a huge key for me. I still use that now to escape any stresses that I have. And did you start with the motorcycles in, uh, while you were still in Australia or did that start, uh, in Denmark? I kind of, I've ridden a few as a, as a kid and, uh, in earlier life, my mum used to ride when she was young as well. And she used to talk and tell stories about that when I was a kid as well. So there was always some kind of, I guess, connection, or at least thinking they were cool when I was a child. And then, uh, yeah, growing up, I wasn't so into any of that kind of stuff. It was more the skateboarding scene, but this seemed like a logical thing to kind of get you away from a computer. If your hands are on the bars, you can't really be connected to your emails either. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> hard to, hard to check email and steer a motorcycle at the same time. Right. Catch us up to why Copenhagen and what, uh, what, what brought you to Denmark? Obviously this was all post heart attack and post recovery, but, uh, paint that picture for us. I think like, yeah, life had become a little bit more sane, should we say. I was uh, at Digitas LBI then towards the end and really enjoying that there. They'd, they'd opened up a, a, an Australia office in Sydney and I'd been one of the first three to, to sort of join that office and help build uh, the foundations they had over there in Australia. And my life had kind of much, uh, kind of normalized, I guess, throughout that process. And I was riding a lot and working a bit and riding a lot and working a bit and, uh, and it had become kind of nice and yeah, then this opportunity came to move to a, a different agency over in Copenhagen. They were fully healthcare based. I think that was another thing that I'd kind of juggled for a while is like, what's the benefit you're adding to the world by working on brands that are not necessarily doing anything positive. So I, I think I saw a little bit of potential in this idea of working within healthcare where you can build patient support platforms and, and stuff like that, uh, that maybe will help some people. So I saw that as a quite a nice opportunity. And with the heart attack and the work-life balance uh, aspect, there's not many more places in the world that are better than Denmark and Sweden or Scandinavia in general, I guess, <laughs> for that. So um, coming over here has been has been brilliant. Most people will leave work every day at five o'clock and switch off and uh, yeah, five weeks of holiday per year. So it's, it's quite a different work pace. Mm, that's awesome. And that's really just a a country culture or maybe even a regional culture there in Scandinavia, correct? Yeah, for sure. Scandinavian culture is very much about the whole work-life balance. Everything's pretty, um, everything's pretty stable. And, uh, yeah, there's a reason why the countries usually get voted happiest places in the world. So, And do most people, um, use that vacation time, that holiday time, like in the summer, as in, does the does the whole region just sort of shut down while everybody's gone, or is it is it more of a rolling holiday thing? Actually, I think this is really interesting because you get a lot of winter here, right? It's very, it's you know, it's extremely heavy winters here. It can be depending on where you are, but people tend to take that holiday in the summer. Logically, to me, it makes sense to take it in the winter, escape the cold, go somewhere nice, come back. But the whole country just shuts down for July and everyone goes on holiday, which makes sense because the kids are off school. So it means that all organizations slow down at the same time and then build back up at the end of July. So it's kind of mm -hmm. business smart and smart for the kids. But I, yeah, as a, I guess, as a young guy with no kids, <laughs> for me, that it makes sense to go <laughs> holiday in the winter when you can get some sun. Get away from all the cold. For sure. So tell us a little bit about, about where you are now and what you're up to. So I left left the healthcare company to go and uh, work at a small creative shop called Revolt. Had a background in kind of live brand activations or, or physical brand activations, very much FMCG and kind of 
uh, a lot of fun projects, shall we say. So I think I'd served my time doing the more beneficial things and then was kind of looking at going to do something a little bit more exciting outside of the red tape of, of the healthcare world. And uh, yeah, I joined this company called Revolt and yeah, it's, it's just been so much more fun since being there. And then uh, probably six months in, the managing director was approached by the owners saying that they were, one had moved over to the US and the other one was working on some app that he'd founded as a startup and they were giving less and less attention to the agency. So would the managing director like to buy it? And uh, he approached me and said, I kind of want to do it, but I'll do it if you come in with me. And we talked about it for maybe a month or so and mm-hmm. and uh, took the plunge. So now we've become 50% owners of Revolt. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And uh, how long has it been since you, you two agreed to, to purchase the agency? I think we agreed to do it in maybe uh, August of last year, but then we took over officially from 1st of December. Does it feel different to go from, you know, kind of probably still a high level position, I would imagine, but to go from, from employee to owner, has it changed your perspective as what it's like running an agency? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would say quite, quite dramatically. <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, you think about salaries and rent and uh, lunch and all of those things that you kind of provide as an, as an organization that you kind of took for granted when you're employed somewhere. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, I've always kind of been responsible for my creative team in different agencies and uh, and their hours and making sure that they're all happy and that kind of thing. But not so much when it becomes the kind of fundamentals of like the business side of an organization. That's definitely been a learning curve. Yeah, and that's um, as it turns out, those are not things that they teach you in design school or in advertising school. Absolutely not. <laughs> so that's been a, that's been a very interesting learning curve for sure. At Revolt, what are what are some of your favorite things to work on these days? One of our biggest clients is Choice Hotels, which I'm sure you'll know from over there. They have mm-hmm. Comfort and Clarion and uh, Quality Inn and all of those. So that, yeah, that's one of our sort of biggest clients. We handle all of their European marketing business. And we're just now also branching out to work with the Canadian team as well. So that's uh, an exciting one for us. We're building kind of unbranded travel platforms and a lot of sort of inspirational travel content to highlight some of the destinations that they have hotels in, which is which is really fun. Aside from that, we also work, as I say, on some FMCG brands, some ice creams and different things like that. Velux windows, the, the roof windows. Um, so it's kind of a widespread variety of things. And um and quite a diverse skill set offering, I think, much more so than many places that I've been before. We're a smaller team, we're 18 people, but we have like a, a creative team that are very hands-on and technical output-wise. We also have a small media team that will handle the uh, the media delivery of all of the content and things that we create. But then we also have like a, an event and activation PR team as well that, that do the sort of more physical things. So I guess the exciting thing for us is when you pair all those things together, put on some big event, make a load of video content for it, design the visuals for the event, and then deliver it through the media and uh, and uh, get the promotion going around it as well. And this is not a huge team, right? How how large are you guys? Eighteen. Eighteen. So that's yeah, that's a pretty deep bench strength to have all of those different uh, skill sets on staff uh, at that size. So so that's amazing. Yeah, definitely. And I think when um, when we gave the, the the sort of takeover or changeover of ownership presentation to the team uh, on December 1st, 
I spoke, I guess, kind of from the heart on that. And, and it's definitely true when I said it is that it's the people that work there, how good they are was the reason why um, I personally felt like it was the right decision to to go in on that and, and buy the company out. I've never worked with as, as skilled a group of people as those. So for sure, it's, it's a very varied skill set, but everyone is just really, really good at what they do. Have you made any significant changes in how the agency is structured or staffed or, you know, have there been any really big changes, positive or negative since you took over? Not directly since we took over. Um, Gus, my partner, um, so he's the managing director. He joined the company as the MD maybe two years ago now, two and a half years ago. And they were, they had no digital focus at all when he was brought on board. So I think over the mm. two and a half years, he's been sort of handling that shift towards more of the yeah, the digital side of marketing, should we say, which is naturally why he then contacted me when they were looking for a creative director, because I was more in that digital skill set also. So I think me joining the team was more kind of confirmation that we're going in that direction. And we've continued to kind of yeah, steamroll more in towards the uh, digital marketing side of town. Uh, than where the company had been traditionally under previous ownership. So this may be a question that some of our listeners have, and and I'm surprised I didn't think to ask this sooner. But so you're you're in Copenhagen, running an agency. I assume English is your first language. <laughs> and <laughs> yep. as I was looking through your website, you know, I'm looking at at other examples, and there was the one video series of the, you know, basically the premise was schedule a meeting with yourself to talk about work. Which I which I loved those examples, but you know most of that's not in English. So, do you have multiple people on the team who speak multiple languages, or how how does kind of the the language piece of that work, or do you find that to be a challenge in your position? So, outside of English speaking countries, it's Amsterdam and Copenhagen are the most English speaking cultures, so that definitely helps. Mm. Um, that's not to say it's not still a bit of a challenge. Like when you go into a bakery and so on, obviously people speak to you in Danish and I'm, <laughs> right. I can, I can understand and respond back in English, but I'm not quite there yet. It's quite a difficult language to speak, but the, the team is 70% Danish. So we at least have a lot of Danes in house who are obviously able to handle that side of things. Um, but one of the key, I guess, USPs or, or positionings for us as an agency is that we are to international um, guys running it from a leadership perspective. So we like to, I guess, pitch as local agency, but with global benchmarks. Mm. We've both, Gus is Australian, uh, I'm British. Uh, he's worked in Australia, Canada, London, and so on. So we've both kind of worked all over the world. So I, I think we definitely bring that kind of like international mindset, which is why as a small company, we can handle the likes of Choice Hotel's whole European portfolio, because we have worked in a lot of different countries and understand that kind of globalization to localization of content and, uh, and strategies and so on. Yeah, I think that's really cool. It's even, you know, like in high school and college, I took German and I would say I was maybe not fluent, but I could, I could understand really well and speak sort of okay. So even listening through some of the, the Danish things was like, oh, there are words there that I can, <laughs> I can guess what it means. Or you start to piece it together between English and German and Danish. And, but, sure. but I'm pretty sure that's not good enough to write a script <laughs> is to think like, oh, I think I get the gist of what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's definitely challenges in that. But uh, yeah, obviously our copywriter internally, he's Danish. <laughs> so uh, yeah. 
that gets handled uh, that gets handled the right way. I would say. You told me before the show that you guys are working on uh, an Uber uh, replacement in Denmark. Um, how did you find yourself in that position? Yeah, so uh, I guess a bit of a backstory. Uber came into the Danish market a few years ago, and um, as much as the, the work-life balance is not a law, there are a lot of laws here that are very strict. I think from an American perspective, there's probably some laws here that might surprise you. Um, but they're, they're very heavy on tax or very heavy on taxation laws and, uh, and kind of compliance around how organizations work. And one of the really, really strict ones is transportation. And Uber didn't necessarily comply to the taxi laws when they came here. And there was a lot of debate back and forth for a long time about how they would get them to comply. Uh, essentially, each driver has to have a proper taxi license. And obviously, that's not really the way Uber works. It's kind of anyone can free for all. So this went back and forth for a while. And in the end, Uber have been banned here, I think, for three years. So another company has popped up there. Um, it's, it's a partnership between one of Danish, or one of the oldest Danish taxi brands and a uh, young app development company, shall we say. So they've partnered together and uh, they're very much on the technical end. So they're not necessarily doing interface design and brand and that kind of thing. So they came to us and, and we had uh, some good conversations about the direction we thought they should go in. And um, after some sort of strategic work up front, uh, then we, yeah, we kind of won the pitch to be able to brand that. And uh, we've also been doing the interface for both the user and the driver side of the, the mobile apps as well. So is, is, uh, is that app live yet? Is the service running or not? Uh, no, the, the, the company hasn't actually launched or gone live yet. Uh, they've gone out into the press, so the identity case will come out, I would say, fairly soon. But the, the company's not actually live yet. But it's been a, an amazing process to go through for us because usually when you build a brand identity, you're either uh, creating something new or you're rebranding an existing brand, for instance. This one felt like a little bit of a scary challenge because because of the nature of the business, no matter what you produce, people are going to always compare it to Uber, right? Or to Lyft. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a, like, how do you go out and try to do something that's unique and making it its own when the product is technically the same or very similar thing? How do you, how much are you going to differentiate that? So it's quite a, quite an interesting, quite an interesting challenge, I would say. Well, I think from a similar perspective, you know, when it comes to differentiating, when you think about your agency and pitching new business, you talked about a little bit about the USP of having kind of the, the global leadership inside of a local firm. But where do you feel like your best clients come from at Revolt? You know, wh who are the ones that, or, or what are the channels through which you find really great clients? I think most, most clients, uh, in, in all honesty, tend to either come from network or come directly to us. I think, the kind of core of the of the agency falls in the name, right? Revolt. Mm. We tend to try to do things that are a little bit provocative or kind of strong and are really core to a company's values. So I think I think that kind of rings true in a lot of the work that we do, especially from a campaigning level. And uh, I, I think the brands see a lot of value in the fact that we like to look at what they really believe in and what their values are and build all of our concepts on that rather than looking to the internet for inspiration or looking at the rest of their industry and just trying to do a like me campaign or a one-up campaign, so to speak. 
Well, speaking of looking to the internet for inspiration, you just told me at the top of the show that, um, which I haven't seen yet, that you are launching this YouTube show about design. So tell me a little bit about what your, what your thought is there. Uh, this is, uh, this, <laughs> this is quite petrifying. I have like, I've <laughs> obviously I have social media channels just like the rest of the universe does, but I've never really done that whole like putting yourself on the internet thing. So this is quite a scary, uh, quite a scary one. But the, I think the thought really came from, uh, you know, I obviously I'm obsessed with design and, and, and love looking at design and consuming design everywhere I go. But it seems to me like there's a bit of a disconnect of audiences at the moment. You have the glossy designing for likes world of the dribble and Behance and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then you have this, um, the strategic design world where it's um, much more about corporate smarts and designing for the long haul and building brand equity and so on. So there didn't seem to me like there was anything that put those two things in one room in a easily consumable way, shall we say. So the idea was uh, basically to do like a, a very quick talk show kind of style uh, once a week where I just talk through some things I've seen or things that are in the news that are either good or bad for whatever it might be, and then highlight some people who are maybe falling underneath the social media radar. So also digging out those people who are producing really great work, but because of the nature of algorithms and popularity and so on in the design platforms, they never tend to get to the popular page, even though their work is great. So people don't discover them. It's kind of like trying to find those people and then, Hopefully, if we can build this channel over time, give those people more of a voice and and help the design community in some way find other people that they maybe wouldn't have found before. And does the show have a name? It's called the Design Show. Actually, <laughs> I thought it'd be easy. The to Design find. Show. That's very, yeah. very straightforward. Yeah. So, do you focus on particular designers and just kind of camp out with that one designer during an episode, or do you talk more around themes, or what? How's the show structured? I, th- I think it's it is a mix of of news and, uh, and and featuring of people, and I mean we're one episode in, right? We launched the first episode this morning, so oh, wow. it's a uh, refresh. <laughs> it's a uh, I don't even know what it is or what it will become yet. So we'll see what the reception from people is like, and uh, and make decisions as we go on how we can tweak and change and make it better. But for now, it's been, for example, I talked about thirty six days of type has started back up for another round. And then the uh, Expedia rebrands that is causing quite a lot of controversy. And then um, also the fact that you can now live stream from Creative South. So kind of news like that, that maybe is Mm -hmm. worth going and looking at. And then three, as I say, like designers that are producing any kind of design work that I think is cool and more people should see. Very cool. Well, I will will definitely tune in there. I've been conducting a little bit of my own YouTube experiment here for the past few weeks. So I, I am like maybe three weeks ahead of you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right. So we'll we'll have to, to trade subscriptions. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes as well. Maybe kind of transitioning from designers that you're excited about and, you know, the glossy world of, of, uh, dribble and the hands and all that. Do you have any particular design hero heroes or, designers that you looked up to as you were kind of coming up in the ranks? Yeah, I, I kind of knew you were going to ask this question. So I, I thought a lot about this on a personal level. If you just look at the stylistic design, then I am a diehard Draplin fan uh, that has played its role into the design show. When, 
when branding that, there's obviously the kind of scary thought, which I'm sure you probably went through uh, of your own when you were branding the Obsessed with Design podcast. Yeah. You kind of know that the design community is going to look at that. So what does it look like? You know, it's quite a, it's quite a, a weird <laughs> thing to design for, I would say. Right, designing for designers. So I kind of decided in that that taking away all of people's opinions, that I would just do something that reflects personal preferences. So I used a Draplin-esque font and then had something that would uh, feel or reminds me of the feeling of when I first got into design as a kid. So it's got Draplin-esque fonts and really childish color schemes. Mm. That's kind of uh, how I went with that. So I think he's he's definitely someone that, yeah, I've looked at for many years and, and enjoyed. But I think if I, if I want to talk truthfully about who my hero in design would be, it's a, a guy from Wales in the UK where I'm from. His name's Alex Jenkins. He's, you maybe won't know him by name, but he's designed things like the Prodigy album covers and uh, the Streets album covers. He's done a lot of like major records for, for huge albums. But he was the, a lecturer in my university in the second year. Um, as I said, that course was like very advertising focused. And in the second year, I was kind of burning for this, like I need to get more graphic design input. Um, so I went into the, the head lecturer and told her that I was going to leave the course and uh, go and join a, a, a university not too far away that had a graphic design course and finish out my third year there. And she said, well, you know, I know you love doing these like record covers in your spare time. So why don't you just wait till tomorrow and meet this guy who's going to come in? And uh, it turned out he was the lecturer for the third year and we had a, an hour long coffee. He persuaded me to stay. And then he was the one that got me the job in the record label when I finished university. So I think he, for me, has been the kind of the the pin i guess that's held it all together for me in my younger years and he's he's also someone that i keep in touch with now if i've ever got a big decision to make even down to buying revolt all those years later i still have a skype call with him and say mate like what do you think about this or what do you think about that mm. and should i be should i be doing this is this the right thing for me you know me very well and so on so he's kind of like a yeah a bit of a hero comes guardian angel however you want to however when you want to yeah say. i you know, it's uh, it's maybe rare for most of us to have a, a hero who's also a mentor or somebody that you can, you know, have that direct relationship with. So that's yeah. that's really incredible. Yeah, I think he's like a, he's the most compassionate person as well. So he's always very understanding and uh, and always there to help. I think he's just a really really great guy. Couldn't be more grateful for him. I think. So maybe you could answer this question from the perspective of you personally, or even you know, just something that's on the radar at Revolt. Mm -hmm. But what what is maybe a dream client or a dream project that you'd like to do in the future? I think I would like to, uh, yeah, on a personal level, I would like to combine that need I had and still have a few years ago of producing work that helps brands and companies that are doing more positive things for the world with the experience in marketing and strategic and uh, design expertise that I've built over time working with the FMCG brands and so on that tend to do marketing a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. I would love to be combining those efforts together and helping those kind of positive progress brands market themselves like uh, an FMCG brand or, or a market leading brand. I think that would be the, that would be something that would really get me out of bed in the morning. What about, for your young designers who are part of your team, or or maybe it's a piece of advice that you've received yourself, but but what is maybe one of your favorite pieces of advice that you've received or favorite to pass along? I think always keep at it would probably be the the motto that I've carried around with me for a long time. 
Um, as I said, loads of drive when I was younger to the point where I felt very burnt out and then had the heart attack and so on. And then I, I think when that burnout came, I kind of shifted my focus a little bit more to, to get more input in different different ways and became more strategic with regards to marketing and learning about SEO and all sorts of different things. I think when you're going down a path where you feel like you're burning out in what you're doing, then don't feel like that's the only option. Be flexible, take input from many other directions, and you can always go back like I kind of have done in the more recent years, then I've come back much more to a graphic design mindset, having spent a few years away from it to kind of relax that part of my brain. Where do you go today or, or what kinds of things do you do that helps you with inspiration or to kind of work through a challenge or a problem or think about things differently? I've, uh, I've joined a communal motorcycle garage here in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we can store bikes and work on them and take them apart and build them and break them most of the time. So I, I think that's a, a really good escape. If I'm if I'm going through kind of like a, or, you know, when you have one of those design projects where it's like a nut that you just can't crack and uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how much you sit, sit in Illustrator or Sketch or whatever and beat the thing, it's just never going to get right until you take some time away and get some perspective. If I go to the garage and play with something, even as simple as like go there and adjust a brake lever for the sake of being in the garage. By the time uh, I've done that and come back, I tend to be able to knock things out pretty quickly. So for me, again, it's a motorcycle related release. Very cool. Well, Ryan is a uh, listener of the show. You'll know this question is coming, but obviously we know designers tend to be obsessed with many things. So I'm curious what you find that you are most obsessed with right now. I think in the in light of the new show and the the goal of combining those types of communities together into something, I think it's probably talking about design would be, uh, you know, this is the first podcast I've ever been on. I've never put myself on YouTube or anything before. So I guess, yeah, talking about design and trying to facilitate design enthusiasts from different areas to kind of come together and understand that there are many different aspects of design. Well, Ryan, I'm excited to um, have helped you make your podcast debut and to get your story and the, the a little bit of the revolt story out there as well. But before we let you go, maybe you could share a few of the places that folks can connect with you online and find you on the internet. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Waring. You can find revolt at uh, revolt.dk, the Danish extension. And you can find The Design Show at thedesignshow.co. Excellent. Well, Ryan, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And uh, thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 103 officially in the books. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already, while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some of the cool things that I find in my daily obsessions. Also, check out 59 Second Friday that I just launched on YouTube. Link is in the show notes. Also, we've added links to all the places you can find the show. iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So head over to the website and right there on the homepage, find the one that's right for you. 
head over to iTunes and please give us a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show. So we love it if you would hit subscribe and love it even more if you take just a moment to write us a review. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. And our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.